one uh, verse this morning. Uh, we're going to look a little bit at the context of it, of course. <clears throat> but it's uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. Let me start again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Pray with me again, please. Thank you, Father, for this good news. I pray that you would use it to strengthen us and encourage us and thrill us with the gospel again this morning. All that you have done for us, we are so grateful. Please help us. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story about a man who went on a sea cruise, two-week cruise, and the first day up on the deck, um, beside his chair on a table there, he saw a book someone had left, and so he picked it up and started reading it, read half a chapter, thumbed through it a little bit, but he didn't really like it, and so he put it back on the table. A few days later, it was his turn to sit at the captain's table for dinner, and that was part of the tour package. Uh, Ten to twelve people at a time got to sit with the captain and talk to him and hear about things that he has done and what the ship was like. And he, at that dinner, he met and he started talking to the young lady sitting beside him. And later on, they fell in love and got married, but during the cruise, he uh, asked her what she did, and she said she was a writer. And in fact, she had left her latest novel up on the deck <clears throat> on the table. And so he went back up there, and he got that book, and he read it through all the way. And he thought it was the most amazing book he had ever read. Now, last week, he wasn't interested. However, now, he couldn't put it down. What was the difference? He was in love with the author. And that's what the scriptures are, and that's what the gospel is, and I'm uh, hope that uh, this morning it'll happen to you again today, that um, you would fall in love with the author again. And <clears throat> as we look at the text, I hope you're once again captivated by the Father's love for you as it's expressed in the gospel. When we say captivated by something, um, that means being thrilled, it means taken by it, it means enthralled. Um, it's something you stare at in wonder and in awe, something you want more of, something that your heart is winsomely captured by. And we use the word gospel all the time. We want gospel-based ministries in this church. We want gospel-based teaching and preaching and counseling and missions and in every part of, of what we do, from cradle to the grave, as it's been expressed well, today, I want to look at the mechanics, if I can put it that way, <clears throat> of how God's love works. I love those shows, um, how it's made or how it works. Today's verse, look at the context a bit, but the, the verse itself is like that. It's how justification and how atonement works. If you look, uh, um, I was thankful that Barb read 
this morning, she already read um, <clears throat> earlier what comes right before this text uh, about if, if anyone is in Christ, in verse 17, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And then Paul goes on and explains. In this section, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, you might know the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. And um, he was encouraging them to be reconciled to God to, and to each other and to the, the world around them. And so that's what he's talking about here. Be a minister of reconciliation. How do you, so it raises the question, how does one get reconciled? And so he says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new cre- creation. Old is gone, new has come. Uh, verse 18, this is from God. It's an important point. This is all from God who through Christ reconciled himself, us to him through Christ, and gives us now that ministry of reconciliation. Um, down to verse 20 then, therefore, or 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and then we get the big clue of how reconciliation works. It says, not counting their trespasses against them we were talking about here with with the pencil so he says that's how you get reconciled to God somehow you've got to get your trespasses not counted against you and therefore verse 20 that makes us ambassadors for Christ and God makes his appeal now through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled and then the word is for there so this is an explanatory verse this morning for our sake He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 21, do you see the three uh, players, the three entities, the three people, if you will? First it says, for our sake, so it's about us and you personally. He, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, and so on. So we, we look at this, uh, we see that God does this. Um, there's a little outline in your bulletin you might have seen that that's the introduction, that God does all of this. He, he, is the, <clears throat> he takes the divine initiative in doing this. But this verse shows us, after we acknowledge in the introduction that it's God who does it, we see that there are two halves to the gospel. One's negative and one's positive. Now, when I say negative, I don't mean bad, of course, but rather that something was taken away, something was minused, something was removed, and the positive side is that something was added. So first, the, the negative side, the minus side. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So by his death, your sin debt is removed. This is the cross. Uh, This is the payment for the awful penalty of sin. Um, Theologians call this Christ. There's three parts to this uh, definition. Penal substitutionary atonement. You hear the word penalty in the first part. It means in going to the cross, a penalty was paid, which means that God can't just look the other way and say, well, boys will be boys, Um, don't worry about it. No, real, 
horrible sins and crimes were committed against the holy triune God of the entire universe and beyond, and that requires a penalty, that of death. And Jesus paid that price. So, secondly, it was substitutionary, not just penalty-based, but substitutionary, meaning he took on human form so he could die as a fitting sacrifice for other humans. That's why the incarnation is so important. That's why we insist on that at Christmas time. The first Christmas, Jesus was born as a human in order to grow up and be our sin substitute. And thirdly, not just penalty-based, not just substitutionary, but an atonement. Which means it actually settles the matter in God's eyes when this death on the cross is accomplished. It was a proper price paid that satisfied God's righteous wrath against sin such that when it was finished, there was no more to pay. Payment made in full to the satisfaction of the one who was offended, God himself. So a penalty-based substitutionary atonement was made, and God did this. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. A bit of a side comment, but when we think about sin, we, we talk about it a lot, this sin that is forgiven it's helpful to remember that there are two faces to the flesh, two, two faces of sin. There's the obvious outward face of the flesh. It's gross, um, heinous sins like murder, bank robbery, immor immorality, uh, adultery, and such. But there's another face of the flesh, and that's religious self-righteousness, Phariseeism. Acting religious and moral on the outside, but spiritually dead and hypocritical and judgmental on the inside. And you probably know much of what Jesus talked about had to do with this second face of the flesh. And it's in the church today. Um, so, let's look a little closer, having said that, at this uh, first minus half of the verse. It says... <clears throat> He who knew no sin, that's who became sin for us, a man who himself was not a sinner. Christ, as a sinless human, didn't need to pay for his own sins. Why? Because he didn't have any. This makes him uniquely qualified and perfectly suited to be our stand-in. If he had any sin himself, his death would have paid for that. And there wouldn't have been any room left, as it were, to cover our sin. So he who knew no sin himself is uniquely qualified to bear our sins. We, we are sinful humans who cannot survive paying our own debt. You know, right, you do know you could pay your own sin debt. You could. But you wouldn't survive it. <clears throat> the wages of sin is death. And so if you do that, it's over. 
So what the Father did was to charge or impute our sin debt to Jesus' account. So he whose account page was empty of debt and completely clean and clear had all of our terrible heavy debts charged to it. Okay, so let's continue with this. Look at the next phrase in the negative side. Became sin for us. This means that the only individual in the entire universe and all of history who should not have died did. The only single solitary man ever, bar none, who didn't deserve to die did. The most innocent paid for the least innocent. He who knew no sin whatsoever was punished for people who were in fact sinners. Notice too, need to be careful here, notice too, it does not say that he became sinful for us. He became sin, not sinful. He wasn't morally sinful for us. Rather, it means he took on the penalty and the punishment for our sin. So the first half of our verse means your sins are paid for in full. And God, the scriptures tell us, have placed them in the deepest part of the sea. I think that's the Mariana's Trench, which is either 7 miles or 12 miles deep. Um, so that's where your sins are in regard to him remembering them for punishment. And there's a buoy up there floating on the top that says no fishing. Your sins are covered completely. Well, that's the, the, the first half of the gospel. I want to look now at the, the second half of the gospel in our verse, and this is the positive um, added part. And that is that we might become the righteousness of God. So everything good that Jesus is and was, and that's a lot, one book could not hold, just like it says um, in John, that if uh, all the good things that he had done, if they were listed in the book, uh, the whole world could not hold a book that big. All of that is credited, given to you, credited to your account. These are accounting terms that um, Paul is using here when he says imputation. Uh, It means you go to the bank and pay $100 on your visa bill and they impute that $100 to your account. They charge it to it. Your account page has been emptied of sin. Zero balance. Because it was sent over to Jesus' page and he paid properly for that. So yes, um, sin erased, astounding fact that that is, but you still have zero balance. You still have nothing good to commend you to God. Well, here the amazing good news is that Jesus' positive righteousness is now charged into your page. So there's a double imputation that has taken place. A double charging takes place in this verse. Sin charged to Jesus and righteousness charged to you. 
sounds trite to say it this way, but what a deal. What an amazing stroke God hit when he did this. This means that God removed the bajillion, gazillion dollars of sin debt and replaces it, writes it in, with a bazillion, gajillion dollars of righteousness. And the Bible also says that this is done to you by faith, not works. You appropriate it personally by faith. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it, but you believe it. You appropriate it personally by faith by saying, yes, that's, that's me, a sinner, without hope in the world, without Jesus, and I now see him as altogether lovely, the only and true Savior, and I take it by faith for myself, no longer theory, but fact for me. And this is, we have Old Testament readings and New Testament readings. We are covenant theologians. We see the whole thing together. So this was true in the Old Testament before Jesus came, just as much as in the New after he did. We know that because in Galatians 3 and Romans 4, <clears throat> it says that Abraham, who was way Old Testament back, Abraham believed, that's faith, all of this about God and imputation, and it says it was reckoned to him or credited to him by faith. So this is something you believe, whether you live before Christ or after. Some look forward to the promise, some look back on it, <clears throat> but this is how people are reconciled with God, and it's by faith in something that someone else did. And by the way, I would just invite you now, if you've either never heard this like this, or you've heard it, but never really believed it and acted upon it, I'd ask you to do that today. Today is the day of salvation. Talk to me or someone after, but please don't postpone it. Well, back to our text, I want to say, um, there's another a bit of a side comment about all of this. Um, I and a number of people have said the same thing, and that is that I didn't really grasp the positive, the, the second part of this verse, until later in my Christian life. Now, I was not raised in a covenant reformed um, <clears throat> setting, and I came to Christ in a non-covenant church. But the part that we're saying here that something wonderful has been added, I didn't somehow catch till later, talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. I just didn't hear a lot about that. I wasn't born or raised in this. But this is a main emphasis in the covenantal, reformed Calvinism system. And I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I do believe, or I wouldn't be in this church, in this denomination, I do believe that the reformed faith is the whole wheat version of the bread of life. I really think that's true. Again, not being arrogant or superior, I just think it's true. Covenant theology, we see it as a whole. Reformed, we go back to the Reformation, what Luther stood for, <clears throat> and Calvin wrote about. 
Calvinism. We use those words. I would prefer to call it biblical theology. I believe that's right. The Reformation started when Martin Luther read in Romans 1 that there is a righteousness from God. That's what struck him like a thunderbolt. There is a righteousness from God that gives him right standing with the Father. Not a righteousness that he manufactured for himself from his own performance. He even called it an alien righteousness because it came from somewhere else, from another world. <clears throat> something from the outside of him, something from God through Christ. So what, what I'm trying to say in this little aside is that many believers like myself got the first half of the verse quickly. My sins are forgiven. That's great, wonderful. I received that and I'm so glad for it. But they missed the second part that I now have Christ's righteousness given to me. So when you catch the significance of this, since that's the case, since it's based on Christ's work and not my performance anymore, God, get this, God can't love me any more or any less than he already does. That's good news. You see that? This means the struggle for righteousness is over. Jesus won it for you. I've known the words of the gospel for a long time, but reading the second half of this verse, I feel that I now know the music of the gospel too. Doesn't this captivate you? Who knew doctrine could be so exciting and captivating? In an earlier church, um, someone said to me, don't give me all that doctrine, just give me Jesus. Well, I wasn't astute enough at the time to say it, but years later I thought of an answer. And I, I said, um, okay, which Jesus? Because there's a lot of them out there, right? All kinds of beliefs about who Jesus is. So if you answer that, which Jesus, I guarantee you, the next words coming out of your mouth, will be doctrine. And that's what we're seeing here. Well, that's the exposition of the text. That's the A and the B and the outline in your bulletin. So now, <clears throat> moving on to C, this is the so what part. What does all of this mean for you today as you walk out of here? If I were to ask you, what is the present value of 2 Corinthians 5.21 for you today, what would you say? What's the present value of Jesus' blood in the supper we had last week? Right now, just as you sit there, before you get up and try to be good, what does this mean for you? One of my favorite writers is uh, Stephen Childers. If you have a chance, you look up some of his stuff online. He's a professor at one of our <clears throat> um, Presbyterian Reform Seminary, the name of which one he was at. It escapes me right now. But he uh, is one of my heroes, and God somehow gifted him to explain these things so well. And he wrote an article called The Transforming Power of the Gospel. 
So you should search that and try to find it. <clears throat> so what I'm sharing with you now, I give as credit to him. Five things, I left you little lines to fill in and hope that doesn't irritate you, I hope that helps you. Um, but five things are true of you now because of the great exchange, because of this double imputation that took place. So if you're in Christ, these five things are already true for you. First, you are forgiven. No matter how great your fear of punishment or how condemned you might feel, in Christ, you are eternally forgiven. So instead of continually punishing yourself for your sins, trying to earn forgiveness, groveling, um, attempting to measure up to some perfectionistic standards, you've got to learn to claim by faith God's promise of his eternal forgiveness of you. I alluded to this earlier, but the good news is that you can do absolutely nothing to make God love you any more or any less. And unless you have a secure status as God's child, you will never behave naturally in his presence. Thinking that your behavior causes you to phase in and phase out of his favor will short-circuit your growth in grace. Secondly, you are accepted. This means that no matter how debilitating your fears of rejection, I don't know how much you have been rejected for whatever reason in your life, and no matter how much that has hurt you or debilitated you, or your feelings of disapproval from others might be, this means that because Christ's perfect righteousness has now been credited to your account through faith in him, you are absolutely accepted. You no longer need to fear rejection. You no longer have to win the approval of others or hide your weaknesses. You're already accepted before you get into any interchange with anyone. That's how you walk into it. You don't always have to defend or build your reputation. That slayed me. I was such, still struggle with it, such a reputation approval person. I spent so much time trying to convince you that by the time we walked away from any interchange, your only thought would be, Dave's a great guy. And I thought as a missionary and a pastor, I had to do that. I beat my family, um, not literally, figuratively. I punished them with the law. And if they didn't keep it like I thought, it came down on them. This means you can stop trying to be who you are not and admit to God and to others that you're a sinner. My daughter loved finding that out. She knew it, but for me to say it. So now you can move towards others with a bold Christ-like love without fear of rejection. Thirdly, you're adopted. No matter how deeply you may have been wounded or damaged by the lack of love from others in your past. This is Mother's Day. I hope it's a good day for you, but <clears throat> not everyone can say that. 
not just mothers, but fathers and others who have hurt us. You need to know now, because of the great exchange, you are now deeply loved. You have been adopted as a child of God, and you've been given all the rights and privileges that were previously granted only to the Father's one natural Son, Jesus. That's all yours now. You don't need to live or feel like a spiritual orphan anymore. It's as if on, in a courtroom setting, God the Father is at the, the judge at the bench. You are dragged in on charges, and the devil is reading everything that's in that record book. And the big doors open at the back, and your advocate Jesus comes in, and he says, you might be thinking, whew, he's here to exonerate me. First thing he says is, it's worse than what's in the record book. I know, because I paid for it all. But I'm here, and he offers himself for arrest and says, punish me for him. And the judge approves this, and the bailiff comes, puts the cuffs on Jesus, and takes him to the electric chair. Now, at that point, you might expect the judge to get an angry scowl on his face and say, all right, I fixed this. You get out of here. I don't want to see you again. You better act right. Didn't do that. Comes down from behind the bench, comes up to you, puts his arm around you, kisses you, takes you across the hall to family court and fills out adoption papers. You're adopted. You now have immediate access into the Father's presence you have the promise of his provision for every need. God's going to do this. And get this, might not sound like good news at first, you have the privilege of his discipline for your good. Please don't confuse discipline with punishment. Jesus took the punishment when he went out to the electric chair. Punishment is over. That landed on Christ. And orphans often mistake discipline for punishment. God will never punish you again. So don't mistake his good, godly discipline as an adopted child. Fourthly, you're free. No matter how defeated you might feel in your battle with sin, you're no longer in bondage to it. Although sin's influence, yes, sin's influence will always be with you, its dominion is broken and over forever through the cross. You once were a slave to sin, but the good news now is that you are free from that old master. You're now called by God to claim the freedom from sin's domineering power over your life, no matter what your current struggle, get this, true hope, for lasting change exists. Yes, the Christian life is more like the turning of a battleship than it is a jet ski, but it's turning. You're free. Lastly, you're not alone. No matter how alone or powerless you may feel in this life, you're not alone. Through faith in Christ, you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit to come alongside you, within you, to comfort you, and to encourage you and to empower you to live 
the life God has called you to live. And as you learn to live by the Spirit, God's Word says that you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Forgiven, accepted, adopted, free, and not alone. This is good news. This is really good news, is it not? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that captivating? Does that not thrill your heart? Let's pray. And Father of mercy, thank you for the gospel of grace that captures our hearts again this morning. Thank you for how very true it all is. Thank you now, by your spirit, please press it into our hearts more deeply. Please more and more make it the foundational way that we relate to you and to others. As best we're able, right now, we latch on to you again by faith with an ever-increasing gratitude, and we pray in the name of our mediator, Jesus. Amen. We have something to sing about, do we not?